Welcome to Footsteps, the Fort Learner National Historic Site podcast. Uh, this is the premiere of the podcast. This is uh, season one, episode one. Uh, this season, we're going to be taking a look at Fort Learned's past, present, and future. Uh, today, we're going to be taking a look at Fort Learned's past. I'm your host, Ranger Ben. Uh, I'm one of the rangers here at Fort Learned National Historic Site. Uh, and co-hosting with me today is our intern, Carter. How's it going today, Carter? It's going pretty good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, yeah, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what got you interested in the fort? So I'm a Larnadite, as I like to say. I'm original to the area. Growing up, I always came out for a candlelight tour. I always thought it was really fun to go watch. So I want to say it was probably 2016 or 2017. I decided to go and do it, and I had a ton of fun doing it. So 2020, I did it. I was put with Ranger Ben here. I didn't really think too much of it, but he reached out to me about a year later and asked if I would be interested in helping with the video. I said, yeah, sure. And when I did that video, it kind of re-sparked my passion for history. And I said, hey, uh, when can I do this more? And he said, oh, Memorial Day is coming up. And I said, I'll see you then. And the rest is history. Yeah. And you started, uh, so your internship is through Freedom's Frontier. And yes. you started, uh, let's see, September 2022. Yes, Freedom's Frontier National Heritage Area. It's a pretty good internship. I'm a minority outreach youth specialist, so my job is to research minorities, and I'll help write minority profiles for our Fort Arnold Outpost articles and just doing general research and reaching out to minorities and other potential volunteers about coming out and helping us be Fort Larned. Now, as we as we dive into this episode, our interview today is with Chief Ranger George Elmore. He's been here for, uh, as he counts it, 50 years. Is a, a great resource, I know, for me uh, as I've developed in my knowledge of Fort Larned. And it was fantastic to hear his perspective on some of the things that he's seen, uh, some of his favorite stories, and uh, the struggles of restoring a partially still-standing or most, I should say, mostly still standing uh, fort. He's honestly been a great source for me and you both. There'll be times where you're not around, and I'm like, oh, I wonder how this happened, or a visitor will ask me some question that I've never had to answer. I know I know the guy to talk to for that. George is, is definitely the resource for uh, all things Fort Larned, and like I said, it was awesome to be able to pick his brain on this episode. Yeah. And one of my favorite things to talk about was restoring the buildings and some of the many things that went into that. Yeah, one of my favorite parts was definitely um, when we were talking to him about what got him, what drew him to the fort, getting to hear how an arrowhead, just a tiny little object, has created something so beautiful. Because I really feel like he's been a big driving force for just about anything that's happened out here. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope you also enjoy the episode. So here you go. All right. So welcome, George. Well, thank you. Welcome to the uh, first episode of Footsteps. As we get started, if you uh, want to tell us your title, how long you've been here, what other parks you may have worked at. Well, I've been here so long I've forgotten. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> no. <clears throat> George Elmore, and title is Chief Ranger. I've been here, started in, I was in college at Fort Hayes in 1973, started working in uh, February and there was nobody, and they, I came down and applied for a job, and the superintendent at the time said, can you start next Saturday? Back then, you could hire right off the street. Of course, it was a seasonal position. So I mean, I worked seasonally for a few years, and then got on permanent in 76. So Nice. Bicentennial position. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> there were quite a few hires that year. <clears throat> there were. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Fort Lauderdale got one. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. um, now, your your degree is in this sort of subject too, isn't it? American West history. Yep. That's my degree, my hobby and job. All three rolled into one. You can't beat it. No, you can't. No, you can't. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm bad at math. How many years does that make that? Well, do you mean according to me or according to the park service? Either one. I say 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are bad at math. No, <laughs> no actually in the park service, they <clears throat> calculate it by a full year. And so a seasonal year only counts like normally three months. But uh, according to the Park Service, it's like 48 years. So nice. Close well, enough to count. My first year, back then, too, you could actually work a person 
nonstop. You didn't have to have a break as a seasonal, but they had to switch your job position. So I started out as a GS4, and then the superintendent came up to me and he said, well, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to keep you on over the winter, but we're going to have to change your grade. It's like, okay, a GS2. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard of such a thing, a GS2. Well, (laughs) but that was just for a few months over the winter and then went back to a four. And then after that, it was the normal seasonal. You get laid off. But policies change. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Monthly sometimes. Not always for the best. No. That was pretty cool. Just get walk in and get hired right off the street without any yeah. hassle. Yeah. I don't know if I've heard of too many GS2s anymore. I don't think there are very many. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect even then it was kind of a <clears throat> not in a common position, let's put it that way. Yeah. So you said you've been here for 47 years. Uh, what other parks have you potentially worked at? This is the only one I've actually worked permanently at. Mm-hmm. I got on set teams in 82 when I got commissioned with the law enforcement degree uh, background. Graduated from the Federal Academy. And so then we had what was called special event teams. They now are called special reaction or SWAT teams or whatever. But on special event teams, there are only like 2,000 commissioned rangers in the entire park service out of normally around 21,000 employees. So what they have to do, each region has teams that they would put together. We had like three or four in this region. And then you would go out and you work events at whatever park. They could call you, and you'd have to be able to be gone within two days, basically, to the event. So Worked events all over from Philadelphia to everywhere. It was quite a, an experience. You get to go to these dedications or not all of them were terribly good mount rushmore several times and in california it's just different places wherever they needed a team to go that's where we went two days is pretty short notice well a lot of more emergency situations too uh you know something happens and they all of a sudden need a team to come in and guard stuff take care of things and whatever yeah all right so you're from Pawnee county originally yep uh what drew you to the fort my personal interest started with <laughs> when I was a uh, <clears throat> young guy out on the farm, we had a hired man and he came in, he had found an arrowhead and it's just absolutely beautiful little black arrowhead. And it just fascinated me. And so that really started my interest into Indians. <clears throat> and then from the Plains Indians history interest going into the the military, which is kind of a common mix, but mm-hmm. started out all with pretty much what were these people like that made this arrowhead? What were they all about? I mean, why did that arrowhead all of a sudden end up out in our pasture? You know, so yeah, mm-hmm. that started it. And then once I got more into it, it was just naturally. You're, I did kind of debate a little bit when I went to college. Do I really want to get a degree in history or maybe geology? Because that both of them fascinate me: rocks and minerals and fossils and paleontology. So. so- why do you find it important to preserve sites like Fort Larned? Well, if we don't preserve our history, who's going to even remember our history? It comes right down to preservation, you know, and authenticity. There's a lot of people say, well, we could bulldoze down the fort and we could rebuild it cheaper than we can actually restore the original. But there's something to be said about actually touching history being able to walk in and get the feel, the smell, and it's the real thing. You're walking on original floors. We have original panes of glass and some windows. It's just phenomenal, the preservation here and how much of the original fort was preserved. And that being able to touch history, just like touching that arrowhead as a kid, inspires people to learn more. You can go to a Hollywood set anywhere. And, well, Ben's Fort's an example. It's a total reconstruction. It's great. It works good as a set. But you're not touching history. You're not really experiencing as it looked when Ben's Fort was there. Mm-hmm. It's our interpretation of how Ben's Fort looked. We're here at Fort Larned. This isn't our interpretation. We know exactly how it looked through the Army plans and through the photographs and through various accounts and the archaeological work, you know, setting it all up. It, it's actually as close, I think, as you could possibly get it mm-hmm. to how it looked in the 1860s. Now, as uh, as, you're, as you're growing up here in Pawnee County, did you ever come out here when when it was still a ranch? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, 
<clears throat> of course, this is a long time ago, but back when I was first, uh, 1957, when the Gunsmoke crew, my folks were going to town, and I drove by, and you could see all the vehicles parked. Dad, Dad, can we stop and look at it? No, we're busy, so we go on in. <laughs> 59, when it was dedicated, kind of the same thing. They had this pageant they put on and different stuff, but we didn't actually come out, but drove by. So I was always curious, just what in the heck's going on down there, you know? But yeah. When uh, I get older, uh, of course, then I start coming out on my own and just walking around and looking and started getting experience for it when I was in, and then in hot, the college, I came out several times too when I was just to walk around and look at the buildings and admire. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, as someone who also has a background in some geology, being that we do have sandstone structures, is there something that also fascinates you about the oh, geology? Yeah. <laughs> of of, of that course, too? yeah, yeah. The sedimentary rocks like sandstone, limestone, which we've got here, are really full of fossils. A lot limestone. Once in a long while, you'll find something in sandstone that didn't preserve as well. But yeah, that's kind of. Fun just to walk around and look at the uh, geology of Fort Larned, too. Yeah. We did that a lot in college. Fort Hayes, where I went to school, was all limestone buildings. And you'd walk around and even had classes that you'd had to identify various fossils and which building and where and stuff. Kind of fun. So kind of continuing on with the historic structures, okay. you were saying that there was people that talked about bulldozing them and just rebuilding it. Well, the, of course. I mean, you start looking at the dollar and cents of something like this. Mm-hmm. What does it really cost? I don't think people are really serious about it. But on the other hand, it's reality. When you do historic preservation, you actually go back in with square nails. <laughs> you try to do it exactly as it was, where you could do it quicker and cheaper with drill-in screws or just round nails. But it uh, that's one really good thing about the Park Service is the degree of historic preservation that everybody tries to get it back to as much as you possibly can. When the Park Service first took it over, they had what was called HABS drawings. There were historic architectural drawings that came in and drew it as they saw it then. And they took photographs of everything. And then they had archaeologists come in and excavate to figure out where porches were that might be missing. And so historians doing a lot of historical research, trying to find plans, photographs, drawings, anything that would relate. And so what we see today is a compilation of all that material and all that research done by these different people going into how these buildings look now. Even down to paint colors, they would go in and try to do paint samples to find out. Mm-hmm. Was it whitewashed? Was it painted? If so, what shade? What color? You know. So would you change anything about the Forks Historic Structures? Hmm. well since i've had a long hand in it there are a couple little things Um, there's a few times in order to get something accomplished we had to stay within the budget and so there was some compromise made it could be corrected like for in the barracks for example they elected to sheetrock the walls because we didn't have the money to go ahead and plaster it so someday that should be really replastered and sheetrock. I mean, the sheetrock, probably the 99% of the people coming in, they don't know the difference between sheetrock and real plaster, but they were really plastered. Mm-hmm. And to me, little things like that kind of bug me. But And that's why if you go in there, you can kind of see <coughs> some lines in the sheetrock where now it's starting to create a little separation. But they do have more techniques now, too, for... <clears throat> doing historic preservation when you actually do sheetrocking, like in the quartermaster building, they have a uh, base now that goes on that you actually skim coat plaster on the top of it. And that makes it, you really can't tell then when that's done. That's almost like uh, what they did with Ben's old fort, just having right. that sort of adobe mm-hmm. covering on that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And two, uh, I know you've mentioned to me before um, the number of posts on the shop's building roof (laughs) well yeah that's an interesting one there this actually happened a couple times out here uh but the shops building the architects took a look at it the archaeologists excavated and where the columns were from about halfway through the building up to the north where the bakery was at had been removed by the farmers to put in a fuel tank and so they were speculating okay we know there was a column here and a column there and a kind of yeah so how many did they put in? 
One was arguing eight. The other was arguing 10. So they put in 10 columns. And no more than a few months after the restoration was done, we found a photograph looking from the east west onto the back of the building. There were nine columns. If they would have just compromised <laughs> between the two. But I mean, those things, and that it wouldn't be that hard to correct. I mean, we've got other historical layers like over in the barracks. <clears throat> the front porch, we assumed, was like the officer's porch. It was mm -hmm. trimmed out a lot like the front porch of the officer's. So the decision was made to put wainscoting on the ceiling. And then we found this photograph. People came in and donated to some three soldiers standing in front. And you can look up and you can see the porch ceiling. There's no wainscoting. Okay. It was an open ceiling. Mm -hmm. oh. And the columns themselves have a different design, too, from that picture. Uh, not much. Know. Not much. Or a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But not, not to a great extent. They're really based off of the officers for the most part. They don't have mm -hmm. the fancy trim and everything up at the top. But the basic column... It was pretty much the same. Actually, on the barracks, it started out with a, a four before down the middle, where on the officers' quarters they didn't. And then they, over the, once they went from that into the 1868 when they were finishing it all up, then they just trimmed around that and four before. In the officers' okay. quarters over here, the columns were all hollow. It was based on the the four sides of the column supporting everything of the weight of the the roof, and so one of the things that behind the scenes that you can't see for the strength and preservation of the building, the architects put four befores in the middle of them today. So that the historic columns are no longer carrying the weight that's being carried by the two four before, but the columns are still there, they're still original, and they're more of a facade now without any structural bearing to them. Yeah, and the, I mean, Officer's Row has arguably the most original material on the buildings, don't they? Yes, very much. The north and south officers' quarters are probably the most historic, with a lot of original fabric of any of the buildings. Because we even have original, <coughs> like you're saying, uh, floors and panes of glass and all that, too. Correct. Where are the barracks and the quartermaster building? By the farmers using it, they didn't need it as a barracks, obviously, mm -hmm. and so they ran cows. Where our offices are today was a dairy barn for a while and a stock <laughs> barn. And so it doesn't, well doesn't smell like that anymore, thankfully. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but the farmers did, even there, through its use, do a lot of preservation. Like back in the kitchens, there were original lath on the ceilings, original baseboards in some places. There was original doors still going from the main part of the building into the kitchen area. Some of the, well, I think it's four of the original gun racks were still up on the walls. They're not a lot, but there were still some of them. I wasn't aware that those were original columns in Officer's Row. Yeah, the officer's quarters are original columns. Well, not 100%. The commanding officer's house, most of the, <coughs> the north and south officer's quarters are original. Yeah. And there are some, too, that uh, we've tried to preserve as much as we can, but say like the bottom of them has rotted so that there is some that is replaced. Is that right? Mm, that's a preservation technique. Yeah. You save as much of the original wood for as long as you possibly can. In some of them, the farmers in the 1920s, they ran a concrete porch and took off the wooden porches, and some of the bottoms of the, some of the columns even then were rotted. And so one of the column supports underneath might have been concrete four inches high. Another one might have been six inches high. They weren't necessarily all level, just went up to whatever wood was rotted. And so today, what we do, if the bottom of it starts deteriorating a little bit, just cut it at an angle, add a new little piece at the bottom, and try to preserve as much as you can for as long as you can. Eventually, you know, like the, probably the main rooms will be okay forever practically, but the hallways still have the original floors in the mm -hmm. hall. And it was debated when we were doing the restoration of the South officers' quarters, would it be better to take up the original boards and put down new or leave them? The advantage of taking them up, then you would have some original flooring to repair damaged areas, maybe in some of the other rooms or something. But we decided it was best to leave the original alone as long as we can. At some point in time in the future, the flooring is going to wear out and it's going to have to be replaced in the hallways. But until then... If we can get another 20 years out of the original floor, let's get another 20 years out of it. Yeah. With all these original buildings, they all hold a story. What would you say is your uh, favorite story from when this was an active post? Like you're, you're right. They all hold a story. Uh, like over here in the officer's quarters with a young officer coming out with his wife and cooking. 
just married and the mother-in-law comes along, you know, today we go to visit family and we might be there for a day or a weekend or maybe a week. Back then, no, it took so long to get out here. The mother-in-law stays months, you know, so here as a lieutenant, they're allowed one room, but then pretty soon he gets command of the company and so he gets a little increase in room space. But uh, it's just a whole different way, really. Of, but the story of the mother-in-law, the wife, and the officer living all in that small confinement, well, I think been a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. But, you know, there are ways, too, they could have mitigated. If the other officers that lived across the hall wouldn't have minded, they could have maybe partition some of the hallway off and let the mother-in-law stay in the hallway. I mean, who knows? We don't know. We just know she was with them. There's a lot of good stories with the barracks, um, like shooting a buffalo through the window. The, it's not a good story. It's a sad story. But the one where you had the drunken soldier come in, he's mad at the first sergeant. He yells at the first sergeant, cursing him out. And the other soldiers are trying to calm this guy down. He and a corporal get into a fight. First sergeant hears the commotion. And he comes walking out, and apparently he's got his rifle at uh, carrier shoulder arms. The drunk swings at him. The first sergeant <clears throat> kind of takes a little bit of side step back, swings up the butt of the gun, hits the drunk in the forehead, orders he be taken over to the blockhouse, and he professed charges in the morning, visit with the officer. Well, over in the blockhouse during the night, the drunk never sobers up. He stays blabbering, and the surgeon suddenly, the postdoctor suddenly gets concerned. He's called over, well, Officer Day gets concerned, calls over the doctor. He examines him, and he has a cracked skull. When the first sergeant hit the soldier in the head, he cracked his skull. And then, of course, then the soldier dies a couple days later. Now, yeah, they get court-martialed. I mean, he gets tried, and he's found uh, it was conduct prejudicial of good order and military discipline on behalf of the drunk. And the first sergeant was by law bound to maintain good order and discipline in the barracks, and he was justified in maintaining the discipline, and it didn't intend to kill him. Just intended to it happened. stop whatever stop, was going on. right. Yeah, yeah. and never really probably thought he was hitting him that hard. Yeah. The steel butt plate on the gun going against the forehead, and everybody's kind of mad. And Adrenaline's going, you don't really yeah, right. get how hard you're swinging that thing. Mm-hmm. And the post-hospital, the favorite story there is the <laughs> rabid wolf coming in and biting the soldier who's sick in bed hand and nearly lacerates a couple fingers and runs over to the porch of the officer's quarters and goes into an officer's quarters and the ladies are screaming and throwing plates and apparently and making getting the wolf chased back out of the building and then over in front of the quartermaster building there was a soldier on guard duty he sees it he lowers his rifle to shoot and the wolf comes running right at him goes right between his legs doesn't bite him because on the other side of the soldier was a big dog and the wolf attacks the dog and they tussle and then the wolf finally takes off from there and he gets shot by some of the guards so what are you gonna do for rabies well also it bites lieutenant thompson in the leg on the porch Mm -hmm. of the officer's quarters nothing then you could do for rabies they washed out the wounds as best they can the dog dies first the soldier dies but lieutenant thompson got lucky and never died yeah he survived the, the wolf bite I mean, there's a couple different accounts of that uh, rabid wolf attack. And from what I can tell, it was just about 30 seconds to a minute of pure chaos. Might have been a little bit longer with that, running from the... Now, the hospital this actually occurred in was the Adobe Hospital back in the mm-hmm. corner. And so it took a while to run that far. But yeah, it didn't last long. It was all over. Yeah. What important historical events occurred at and around Fort Larned? Well, I think one of the most uh, important at the national level was when the Hancock Expedition came in in, in 1867. Uh, April 67, they arrived, 1,400 men. They know during the Civil War, Indian relations kind of got worse. The Indians realized that the government's fighting the government of the South and things are kind of going nuts, so, and they took advantage of it. And so... Hancock decides he could bring out this massive army. Of course, he's commander of the Department of Missouri, and they can subdue the Indians by impressing them. And he's got artillery, infantry, cavalry, press corps, band, everything you can think of on this expedition, platoon boats to help cross the river, just like you're back east and doing a big major Civil War campaign. 
well, scouts, guides, you know, that they go about, uh, well, back it up. Hancock wanted the Indians to come in and visit with him here at the fort and have this big peace parley here at the fort. A few of them make it in. Most of them don't because there was a snowstorm that had hit and various reasons. The Army didn't trust, the Indians didn't trust the Army too well because after Sand Creek, they were afraid maybe this is going to be just a massacre, kill us all. So then Hancock says, well, I'm going to take my army out to you. And in going out to the village site, which everybody here knew where it was at, it wasn't any big mystery. It had been a big winter encampment of Lakota and Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. Um, they arrive at a hill, and this is the first night out. They go into camp underneath the hill. That morning, they get kind of a late start. They're heading out over the top of this little hill. And a raid then in front of them were the warriors from this village. And they don't really know how many, but they were zigzagging back and forth on their horses. What they were trying to do is delay the army from getting to the village because they wanted time for the ladies and the kids to escape and not get caught like at Sand Creek. So pretty soon they decide to have a, a meeting. They meet down at the base of the hill. Some of the Custer and Hancock and some of the military leaders and a couple of the Indian leaders come over and uh, one of the Indian agents, Winecoop, Winecoop, actually then kind of negotiated a little bit. And finally the Indians agreed to let the army come closer to the village, but not to the village. They had to stay with about a mile away. And they agreed. And they were going to have this big meeting out there. <clears throat> and when the army gets out there, they establish camp. And then finally word gets back to General Hancock that the Indians had fled. You've been tricked. It's a deserted village. And so Custer goes in on his hands and knees and some other couple other guys, and they, he crawls around, and, yeah, it's been abandoned. Uh, Custer does find an old Indian man in one of the, the lodges. There was a girl and an elderly lady that had been left behind to keep the fires going, walk around, make it look like the village is still very active. And mm-hmm. it was a tremendous uh, duping of the army by the Indians. I mean, delaying all this going from here out there and then, Hancock gets mad. He orders Custer to go out in pursuit first thing the next morning. So the 7th Cavalry then goes out in pursuit of the Indians that were at the village. And then Hancock decides to pretty much uh, destroy the village. Uh, The lodges were taken down and counted and how many of them there were. The Indian agent counted how many there were. And they too don't quite agree, but they're close. And so finally word... There's a big debate amongst historians whether the word really gets back. But Custer, in his 7th Cavalry, discover up at the Smoky Hill Station, the stage master has been pinned to the building with arrows and burned alive with the building. And Hancock claims he got that word, so then he thought for sure that these Indians were the ones that did it, and he didn't know that. But whether he actually got that message or he was just anxious, and he ordered everything to be torched, mm-hmm. everything to be burned at the village. And then he takes the infantry and goes down to Fort Dodge. By burning the village and all this material, then he catches the prairie on fire. So as the infantry and the artillery are going down to Fort Dodge, they're going down through prairie fires and smoke, and they kind of get lost, zigzagging back and forth. They finally get to Fort Dodge. But this changes military policy. That's what's so important about this. Mm -hmm. The Army suddenly realized Civil War tactics are not going to work in the West. And so they go to winter campaigns with the Battle of the Washita, where the Indians can't flee, can't run. They're going to be forced to be in a small area. They don't have supplies like we do. We can take, you know, into a small village and force them onto reservations and deal with it. But by the change of military policy, that's a national effect, Mm -hmm. which really is, in my mind, very important. And then the Indian Wars are affected from then on. That... Okay, yeah, Sand Creek is horrible. I mean, you know, a lot of Indians got killed, but it didn't, it changes the way the Indians perceived the government, no doubt, but it didn't really influence the way the government was fighting, like this expedition did. Mm-hmm. That was the, the massive expeditions didn't work. They were suddenly realized that, didn't do any good. The Indians weren't impressed at all. They could just run away and you'd never catch them with a large expedition. That was uh, that was Custer's first experience of the Plains Indians too, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. That sort of set his uh, in his mind too. What uh, 
the Indians are going to run. They got to get there in a hurry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I think that was probably in his mind to battle a little bit more. You really get right down to it, because there's so much that is the same. It's basically the same people that were in that village site there that we'll meet again at the Little Bighorn, and of course the Washita. Some of them were the same there too. Black Kettle. Yeah. Now that uh, later Hancock runs for president, and that works against him, doesn't it? There was. <clears throat> The press corps was long, like we mentioned, and at the time, the press coverage was very good, but it quickly got into the Eastern papers that, yes, that this was a big failure. It cost the government a whole lot of money for this expedition. Nothing really came out of it, and Hancock does get blamed for it, and yeah, it probably cost him the presidency. If you stop and you look after the Civil War, how many presidents were famous generals during the war? And Hancock was very famous from the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah. And he certainly would have been a shoe-in. But all of a sudden, his popularity went way down. And correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Comanche Jack so well with that expedition? Yeah. There were several uh, notable scouts and guides. Probably the most notable scout and guide really to work out of Fort Larnes, Buffalo Bill, William Cody. Mm-hmm. He actually worked here in the quartermaster building. During the summer, they had him out scouting and guiding, but during the winter, they wanted to keep him on. They switched him to a clerk, so they were able to keep him for a while here. So if you come to our issue room, you're walking in the footsteps of yeah, Buffalo right. Bill and walking the, the same The whole lineage of famous officers that were here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Nolan, head of the cavalry, and well, you got now he's uh, with the Buffalo Soldiers. You got um, uh, William Forwood, who becomes Surgeon General, correct? Right. He, started, he was actually here a couple times. He was here the first time as a single officer. And apparently, from some of the accounts, he liked to party. And he'd invite other officers over to his house, and they would have wine and parties and play cards, just get together with the guys. He leaves for a few months, gets married, and he gets reassigned to Fort Larned. And when he was back the second time, he had his wife with him. My favorite Forward story. <laughs> Got a call a few years ago from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, and they said, when did you send us the buffalo from Fort Larned? Like, what? We don't have buffalo here today. What are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, you do. We got a buffalo skeleton here from Fort Larned. No, <laughs> we haven't had bison here since the great herds were destroyed in the 1870s. And I said, who sent the bison? Yeah. Well, it's tagged on the box, W. Forwood. <laughs> so actually, Forwood was a um, post surgeons then were the post historians. They had to record the flora and fauna. They had to record astronomical observations, weather. And uh, he was a scientist and a historian, right up with being a doctor. And he went out and collected a bison and sent it to the Smithsonian, and it's still there today. So what the next question was, what else did Forward send? But they checked their card catalog for Fort Larned, and Surgeon uh, Woodhall sent a coyote. So a couple of the surgeons here sent specimens back to the Smithsonian. So uh, going under reconstruction, you were here for the reconstruction of more or less all the buildings, correct? Uh, reconstruction or no restoration restoration yes. there we go that's the, word. the one building with this reconstruction is the blockhouse so um what was the most difficult part of restoring the fort well i think one of the most interesting and in getting it restored is the blockhouse and that project the Frizzells, who owned the farm during the farming period from 1902 until we got it back Frizzell family had put a pig pen over the top of where part of the blockhouse was at and a lot of people over the years thought that probably that had destroyed all evidence of the blockhouse. But we had Dr. Doug Scott, and he came in with a the crew. Uh, they found the corners of the blockhouse were still there. And so then the next year they came in and did a little more. And then finally, it was determined to go back to the congressional intent. And Congress, when Fort Larned was established, said that the blockhouse should be reconstructed. And... That push got moved forward, and so it was decided to reconstruct the blockhouse. And with that, they brought in another archaeologist, a couple of historic architects, and totally excavated the underground portions of the blockhouse, which were still there, still intact. You could tell every place there was a board. It was still there. The steps going down from the main part into the basement were still there. Down in the passageway, it was wooden lined. All that lining was still there. And around the well was sandstone, which is still there. The archaeologists, a good thing that the historic architects were there, because once they exposed this wood 
to the open air, it started just almost within minutes peeling and just decaying rapidly because of the moisture in the ground over the years. So you really, if you hadn't been for the architects being there, it would have been hard to document. But they quickly were able to document the size of each board, the length of each board. Mm-hmm. And so at the, it is a reconstruction, yes, but every board in that underground part today is the exact copy of what was found in that underground part. And in the stone, back in the well house, they laid down plywood once they excavated it, restored the building, picked up the plywood. So when you walk into the well house itself, you're even walking at the original dirt level where the original floor was at. So there's a lot of historic integrity, even though it's a reconstruction. Backing up from this a little bit, when we were doing the restoration of the officers' quarters, we had to remove the concrete and put the wooden porches back. Well, when the blockhouse was torn down, apparently they had saved the stone. And then as the porches on the officers' quarters started to deteriorate and sag, they took these blockhouse stones and shored them up underneath. And so we found entombed in the concrete in front, numerous blockhouse stones underneath it. Blockhouse stones have been encapsulated in this concrete. We found over 300 original stones from the blockhouse. And cornerstones, gun loophole stones, I mean, it was easy. It's kind of like a puzzle putting it together, but the historic architects with the photographs were then able to figure out exactly how the corners looked. And there are all 300 of those stones are back into the building today. So even though it's a reconstruction, yeah, it has original stones in it. The underground parts all have historical integrity. Foundation, original foundation had to be removed, but the exact foundation today is on top of exactly where it was then. So how much progress have we made up to this point in terms of restoration? We have the commanding officer's house yet to restore on the interior. We did the exterior, and hopefully within the next year or two, we'll be able to do the interior of the building we're in right now. That's the last big original building to be restored. Now, in the future, whether we'll ever see, you know, other things done. uh, A lot of the early documents called for the 10th Cavalry Stables to be reproduced in uh, one of the the Sutler store, at least, uh, where the soldiers could buy and sell and traders up and down the trail could buy and sell. And the stables has always been considered extremely important to do because of the entire story of the Buffalo soldiers just being organized. The very first Buffalo soldier unit assigned to the field was assigned to Fort Larned. The first engagement was not here, but on their way here, they were by Fort Harker. They were attacked. Some people think it was by Indians, but that was never really decided. It could have been easily by desperados trying to steal their horses. Mm -hmm. But they were shot at, they returned fire, Nothing else really happened, but that was actually an engagement that they did have on their way here. And then they arrive here with 99 men. Nicholas Nolan, uh, like I said, the hero of Gettysburg Cavalry, but he was their captain and uh, stays here for about two years with the men. And the stories of them while they were here and what occurred here, and some of it's really kind of sad, a lot of the infantrymen, you know, they may have fought in the Civil War to free the slaves, but in their mind, they didn't fight to work with the black cavalry. Mm-hmm. They didn't like that. Others accepted them. It brought a lot of racial issues to the front. It, it, the whole thing is a long, long story, and it's more than we probably have time to talk about today. Yeah. But just the bottom line is there was a lot of discrimination that took place yeah. between the black troops and the white troops here. Absolutely. And, and you <clears> see <throat> some of that discrimination happening even with the laundresses. And, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. They get right. Fighting, fires, that's not the only fire. There's one in the barracks, too. Yeah. Probably one of the infantrymen walking by threw a match on. They were changing the prairie hay in the the barracks, bed sacks, and had to be changed every month. And there was even discrimination against Nolan. Oh, yeah, tremendous. He's accepted by the other officers because of his Civil War record and being a great officer. He's married, his wife's here with him, but... uh, yeah, he was ostracized in a lot of ways, too. Which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Like, especially by the infantrymen, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the commanding officers even told Nolan, and when he was officer of the day, he'd gotten into, um, some of these infantrymen got into a fight. 
Anyway, he was told, you're a cavalry officer. These are infantrymen. They don't have to pay attention to your orders. But he was officer of the day, so yeah, certainly they did have to. Yeah. But a lot of discrimination like that, little things. That, yeah. And what's really cool is is uh, in recent years, uh, our friends group has been able to, uh, or has donated the, one of his revolvers that he had. Yeah, our friends group, the Fort Lauderdale Old Guard, uh, found out about this revolver and were able to raise about 15000 to get it purchased for the exhibits here, which is really phenomenal to get an original gun carried by a Fort Lauderdale officer on display. I think on our exhibits, one of the best things, and these are just two years old now, three, that uh, we worked a lot with the tribes. Mm. And so for the first time, we're actually telling the story of the, the Indians, the way the Indians perceive it. Like when you come in, we have the hologram of a Cheyenne girl in a lodge telling you their version of the Indian Wars. And then culturally, too, we really deal a lot now with the, the Buffalo soldiers and the Hispanics and trying to talk more about just not the uniforms and the equipment that was carried and used here, but the actual people who were here. And I think, too, maintaining what we've done is going to be a challenge for some of the people in the future. Yeah. No, I mean, and hopefully they won't take shortcuts and say, well, okay, we're not going to, we know the fences are all whitewashed, but we're not going to whitewash them. We'll just, the facings of the buildings were painted and the fences and smaller outbuildings and things were whitewashed. Mm -hmm. The military makes a big distinction of the two. And you can see that today too. You can see the difference between the whitewash and the, yeah, you can. Like the privies are painted. You can tell that and the, mm -hmm. the doors too. Right. Yeah. No, there was a, I was talking to a reenactor at a recent event and asking him what his thoughts on this site were. And he said, usually you have either well-preserved or secluded, like these posts were. And he says, you never often see the two together. And that's really what mm -hmm. we have here. Right. Uh, like you were saying, I mean, there's, there's little things that we can work on improving in the future. But, um, and even though the trees that you see here today weren't there when the army was here, it really shields us from the highway and... and <coughs> turns back that dial on the trees you got to stop and consider what time you're talking about if you're talking about 1859 when the army first arrived we have sketches by private roach and the river looks almost identical to the way it did today but the soldiers that were here during the civil war years cut down the trees for firewood they didn't want to go out away the regular army when they were coming back after the war they were going up to 30 miles away and they were upset that all the shade trees were gone and if you look at the photograph like that one taken in 1867 you see stumps where trees were that have been cut down. But the river, I think, should pretty much be kept as it is. Now, it's the early view of Fort Larned, not the 1860s view, but still it provides a good screening barrier for the highway, which actually helps sound proofing and everything else and visually helps throw you into that period without seeing a lot of modern traffic mm. a quarter mile away on the highway. All right. So how can we continue to grow and develop Fort Larned? The best way is to keep selling it to the American public. Mm -hmm. The congressional mandate we have is to educate and interpret Fort Larned toward the American public, you know, what happened here. <clears throat> we need to keep following that and keep our eyes on that congressional mandate, whether it be social media or whether it be increased visitation, it really doesn't matter because we're educating and interpreting what happened in the American West to the public through both ways. And we've got to continue that and hopefully over a period of time, it will just naturally get more visitation. Mm -hmm. But our visitation has flowed up and down over the years. When Gunsmoke was very active and on TV, and <coughs> we used to have around 50,000 a year. Gunsmoke goes off the air. Dodge City's no longer a big mecca for everybody that wants to go see the cowboy thing. Their visitation drops from probably 100 and some thousand down to around 30, 40,000 today. The power of the TV really got people, whether it was, no matter what you think of gun smoke, it brought <laughs> attention to central Kansas and to Dodge City, which is only 55 miles away. Mm -hmm. And it brought a lot of people here. Yeah. Even though the show itself was filmed, what, in California? <laughs> yeah. Well, Melbourne Stone uh, played Doc on Gunsmoke. Grew up just a quarter mile south of the fort and played these buildings as a kid. And I think he probably had a lot to do with 
a lot of the little stories that they'd have once, well, we're going to Fort Larned, or let's go fishing on the Pawnee, you know, or going to Fort Hayes. So he had a lot of the historical references that he was able to help with for authenticity. That's really cool. Uh, Now we have uh, some really cool events throughout the year, uh, five or six or so. Um, How would, uh, sort of speaking to the listeners and uh, and our, our volunteers that help us out with that, how would, uh, tell us a little bit about maybe what your favorite event is and, and how those folks can help out with those kind of things. Well, my favorite event is Candlelight Tour because it's all based off of historic records. And it's for one night we do first person and it's trying to create the illusion as if you walk through the fort when some of these different events occurred. Unfortunately, it doesn't ever... We have to cap it out to like around 200 people a night, and we could give a lot more than that. But in order to keep it, these scenes correct, it takes a lot of planning and everything, but it takes a lot of volunteers, uh, volunteer effort. Some candlelight tours have had up to 70 people volunteering. The average one's probably around 50 people that are coming out and helping with it. And it's important that local people take part with some of the things that we do. We couldn't begin to do interpretation without volunteers here. You know, our staff is way too small. Just like today, we have a volunteer blacksmith in the blacksmith shop. We have a volunteer carpenter over in the carpenter shop. And I think that's pretty important, too. If you remember Colonial Williamsburg and how everybody goes there to see the way everything happened during the colonial period. I hate to say this term, but almost like a Williamsburg of the West, Hmm. where people could come and actually learn about the 1860s and have some of the crafts and different things going on that went on here. I think our Plains Indian interpretation needs to increase a lot, though, too. Mm-hmm. We really, our mandate is yeah. to tell the story of the Santa Fe Trail and the military role, and we've got to keep doing that, but we could certainly expand it more into a lot more Indian interpretation than what we're doing. Yeah. But trying to find native and living history people, that it's kind of, in this area, it's not too easy. Yeah. No, and and that's important not only just for events, but for just sort of day to day because we get that's right twenty five to thirty thousand or so uh, visitors a year. We're averaging around twenty eight to thirty thousand right now. It's during the virus, it goes up and down a little bit, but the average year will be right around twenty eight to thirty thousand. So we kind of stabilized at that. Yeah. When we dedicated the blockhouse and had that reconstruction done, all of a sudden it went up to around fifty thousand. Just made a little bump. Yeah, and we expected that to kind of happen because of the the locals telling each other, "Hey, put a building in out there. Let's go see it." Yeah, it's really important for the local community and Fort Larned to work hand in hand. At any point in time that that doesn't happen, it's not going to be good for either one of us. Yeah, uh, there's definitely ways that we can. Yeah, help the friends group is very important and doing mm-hmm. a very good job of promoting Fort Larned. Hopefully, they will survive and stay there too. I hope so. Too. I can envision down the road. The Cheyenne Sioux Village that was burned, uh, the Friends Group owned it today, is 32 miles from here, that it will hopefully become a national landmark and then eventually become a satellite area of Fort Larned. And a lot of the native interpretation then could be done out the village site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be fantastic. But that's in the future. Yeah, down the line. Down the line. <laughs> so for our, uh, our listeners who say uh, from out of the area or across the country... What are some ways that they can help support the park and help what we do here? I think it's not just for them to help support the park, but what can we do to help them? You know, while they're here learning about the American West, and if we excite them about the place, they're going to come. They're going to learn about it. And then through that, then in reverse, it helps us too. Yeah. And hopefully they tell their friends and yeah. what a cool site this is. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get a lot of visitation from outside the United States. And you stop and think, almost half of the soldiers were immigrants. Yeah. You know, French, Italian, Swedes, you name it. <laughs> you would have heard all sorts you of languages. You would have heard all sorts of languages being spoke here. And the Indian leaders, too. Let's don't forget them. Black Kettle was here. The Indian agency was here. These tribes were coming in and... <clears throat> Seeing Fort Larned. I mean, they were curious how the soldiers lived and walk around and look at the buildings and count from one of the officer's wives that she never got used to the time they were here. The room could suddenly go dark and there'd be an Indian looking in her window. 
that they were coming in, picking up annuities and signing treaties. It wasn't fighting. It was peaceful attempts to end the Indian Wars. So not all of Fort Larned is about fighting. The Bureau of Indian Affairs was here. The Indian agents were here and a lot of peaceful attempts, too. Can you imagine if you were a soldier here, and on one hand, you're giving the Indians food, ammunition to maintain their way of life, and the next day you're out on patrol and one of your friends gets shot? What are you going to think? I, yeah, I'm sure it was I'd hard for them to understand today, but both were done here, both yeah. peaceful and military attempts. How can listeners learn more about the park? By coming here or listening to our social media and pick up a good book. You know, we got a lot of publications on the fort and different things. Hopefully, we will continue social media, continue the outreach, and keep reaching people that, like you're talking about, then they will be excited to come here. To really learn about the park, they need to come here. You know, you can read about it, but until you come here and you physically touch it, you can walk on the original floors, you can see history. I mean, it's just oods, the original stuff. It just... It's wow. Where can you go and really touch the 1860s like you can here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That's definitely a unique site and uh, definitely a unique perspective you have from being able to see sort of the evolution of uh, the past into the present, uh, sort of the ranch era, and then almost turning the dial back as we go forward. Right. We can be very thankful the National Park Service got it. Yes. I can imagine what this would have become if it would have been. Yeah. We might not have what we're right. today. Yeah. So might not be here. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking with us for a bit. And uh, certainly, hopefully, it will uh, encourage some folks to come see it for themselves. No, let's hope so. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for taking a listen today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode looking into Fort Larned's past. Uh, again, if you uh, don't follow us already on our social media, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, be sure to check out our webpage. Uh, we have a lot of resources there for you, as well as uh, some of the videos and things like that that Carter and I referenced at the beginning of the, the podcast. Thanks for giving it a listen. Uh, if you have any interest in stuff that's pretty similar to Fort Learned, definitely check out Ben's old fort. Yeah, their, their social media has a lot of similar uh, aspects to ours. So Yeah, and uh, it's a super cool site. It is. It was one of my favorites. Keep exploring your national parks. Come to Fort Learned. And we hope you have a wonderful day. Keep an eye out for future Footsteps podcast. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful day. We'll catch you next time on Footsteps, the Fort Learned National Historic Site podcast. Thank you.